All right, we're in a new series going through Paul's letters from prison. He wrote four letters from prison that applied to each of us, that applied to every human being, and it speaks to so many profound and important aspects of our lives. If you're here last week, you might remember a little acronym that I gave to remember the four letters that Paul wrote from prison. You remember what that acronym is? Pepsi. So, if you weren't here last week, you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Pepsi. So, you have Philippians, you have Ephesians, you have Philemon, and you have Colossians that Paul wrote from prison. In a two-year span, he wrote these letters. And so, our last series, we went through Philippians. And if you want to listen to Philippians, uh, it's on YouTube, it's on our podcast on Apple. But now we're introducing, and we're going to get into a little bit of the book of Ephesians. Paul wasn't always a Christian. He, in fact, hated Christians, and he had permission from the government to do harm to believers in the known world. Put them in jail. He, he allowed for Christians being murdered. Christ encountered him and changed his life. And no longer is he persecuting the church. He's planting churches. He's starting new churches. And he started one particular church in a place called Ephesus. He gathered believers, gave them a solid foundation on the word of God, and he spent three years in Ephesus. And this is longer than any time he's spent in any particular city ministering the gospel. And he writes this letter, and it reflects this time that he spent there. And some biblical scholars argue that the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus is his greatest letter. It's profoundly rich in Christian teaching and very practical. He's so excited about the glory of God, and you'll see in a few verses in, in chapter 1. This is one of Paul's greatest letters. And we have the great privilege of being able to read it. And so Ephesians, it deals with topics at the very core of what it means to be a Christian, both in faith and in practice, regardless of any particular problem in our community, in our lives, or in our church. It addresses things like, how should believers live? It addresses things like spiritual warfare. Things like God's sovereignty and human free will. Worship in the church. Gender roles in marriage. Racial reconciliation. God's design and plan for the church. And living in a context with many different religions and the role of uh, prayer. Amongst many, many things. And we'll see all these things unfold as we take, I'm imagining, a few months to get through Ephesians and the rest of Paul's letters. And so Paul is writing this letter for believers to live out their lives practically. But in order to live your life out practically for God, we must first be rooted in Christ theologically. To live practically as a Christian, we must be grounded in Christ theologically. Now what is theology? Theology, theos, is God. Ology is the study of that thing, of that object. So theology is the study, the knowing of 
God. So when we encounter, we engage in reading of Scripture, in the study of the Word, we are engaging in theology. And theology matters. It's not that we have theology here and living here. Theology matters for all of life. Everything is theological. Everything we do comes from a foundation of what we think about God and what we think of our lives. Everything is theological. And that's how the book of Ephesians is written. It has six chapters. In the first three chapters, Paul lays down a theological framework as to how we are to think and behave. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 lay out how we are to live out that theology. So it's, it's split in half perfectly. And as we go through the prison letters, I hope you will learn to love theology. And as you grow in your depth and knowledge in theology, you worship God more and more. And you become more and more like Christ. If you do not know Christ, if he is not your Savior, and you don't know what theology is, I pray that as we read through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, that you will see him as amazing. And you will give, not Paul, Christ. You will see Christ as amazing, and you will give your life to him. And so Paul, in writing this letter, he's reminding the believers that need to be focused and centered on Christ, who is the ruler of heaven and earth, and that their allegiance, our allegiance, your allegiance, if you're a Christian, is to Christ and to his supreme power in this world and in your life. That's what Paul is doing as he writes this. But what is the context in which he writes? What's, what's Ephesus like? Why is he writing this particular way? Well, we've got to take a time machine. We've got to go back to the ancient city of Ephesus. Ancient Ephesus is one of the three largest cities in the known world at the time. One of the largest cities of the Roman Empire. It's the third largest next to Rome, which is massive, and the city of Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And then there's Ephesus, which is number three. It's very multi-ethnic. You had about 300,000 people living in Ephesus. It was a walled city. It's very important. It was a big trading and commercial hub. It was a center for learning. There was a big library there, and people would come and philosophize and read books and go to the library and get their heads all big. It had a very good climate, and it had very good soil. Unreasonably good, some scholars said. The, the ground for, for farms was amazing. So farming and agriculture was huge there. Trade was huge there. And people would visit there lots. The inhabitants, the citizens of Ephesus, they were known to be self-indulgent, very extravagant, and they worshipped many, many gods and many different goddesses. Some say they had over 50 different gods that they worshipped. And if you're familiar with Roman folklore, you'd have gods like Zeus and Apollo and many, many different other gods. But one particular god that was the center of Ephesus was the goddess Artemis. They sometimes called her Diana. And they built a gigantic temple for her. 
that was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. And the Parthenon was a gigantic building. And Artemis was the center of Ephesian worship. They would hold festivals. They held games in her honor. Twice a week, they would, the people would go around the city yelling, chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would start off in this stadium, one of the biggest stadiums at the time of 20,000 people. They would just chant for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and then walk around town doing that. This is how central Artemis is, and this is who Paul is writing to. This city worships many different gods. And we might think, oh, that's not like the Yukon. We don't, we don't have an Artemis. We don't have a Diana. I would argue we have more gods in the Yukon than the people in Ephesians. But we don't have temples we go to. We might find these gods on our phone, on social media. We might give our lives to people and worship them, but we just wouldn't describe it that way. The letter to the Ephesian church could be a letter to the church in the Yukon, to the church in Canada, to the church in Europe. Highly, highly relevant to each of us. And so that's the introduction to Ephesians and why Paul is writing. We're going to read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll explain a little bit of what Paul is doing here. And I hope to teach you some doctrine as and theology as we go along. And I hope this is highly encouraging and applicable to each of your lives. You ready? I guess you don't really have a choice, so here we go. Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back that are a gift to you from the Northern Collective. You can also follow on the screen or just listen to my radio voice. This letter, Paul writes in verse 1, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Paul often opens up his letters with an introduction like that. Now, verses 3 to 14 you have to understand that when people write in Greek, you don't have commas and you don't have periods. Verses 3 to 14 is one gigantic sentence. And I'm going to read it in its entirety. And the design of this section of Ephesians is to show Paul's passion for the glory of God. You, you ever get so excited you just you can't stop talking? Little kids do that. We do that sometimes. Right? You just, you just go and go and go and people have to say, you got to be quiet. Okay, just slow down. This is what Paul is doing, but in writing. So I'm not going to be able to capture the full passion of what he's doing, but in these verses 3 to 14, there are no commas, there's no periods. So buckle up your seatbelt and let's listen to the passion that Paul had. This is amazing. Just listen to this. If you don't know God, just, just listen to the passion that this guy has and maybe you'll want to know him. 
All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, forgave our sins. He showered his kindness on us, allowing with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, we were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you, And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Sorry, Brent, this wasn't in the slides and (laughs) I threw you under the bus there. But this this is an amazing, amazing passion passage of Paul's passion for the glory of God and what Christ did for us. This is the gospel and this is what Christ has done for us. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to learn about what he is doing. So firstly, I I read through that rather quickly. I expect you to have memorized that as I was reading it. So verse 3, I'll praise the God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, get this, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. I'm going to explain what that means in a second. We're going to go to verse 8 and then I'll explain. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins and he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. So I want to teach you one doctrine here. I want to explain to you what's happening here. The doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of predestination. Some of you may have heard of this. Some of you hear this and shiver. Some of you hear this and rejoice. Some of you have never heard of this. I want to explain what what this is to you. The question is, when, if you are a Christian, when did God choose you to be in his family? The classic response is, when I believed. Paul is saying, before the foundations of the world. Verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us, in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. You, 
if you are a Christian, were chosen before the foundations of the world to be in God's family. The doctrine of predestination says that he predetermined, pre-chose who would be in his family. There is a great tension here. Because when you hear me preach, you often hear me refer to 2009. That's when I gave my life to Christ. That's true. That is true in one sense. That prior to 2009, I hated God. I hated Christ. I hated the Holy Spirit. I hated Christians. I want nothing to do with him. And then in 2009, I heard the gospel for the first time. And I gave my life to Christ. And if you're a Christian, you heard the gospel at one time and you believed it to be true. And you put your faith in the sovereign God. That's the moment you place your faith. But when was the moment you were part of God's family? It is simultaneously that moment and before the foundations of the earth. I can't explain why that is or how that works. You were chosen before you were born. You were chosen before you committed any wrong. He chose you out of the kindness and goodness and preciousness of his own grace and of his own freedom. And the faith that we have is actually a gift from him. So that when we go to heaven and we stand before the judge of all things and he says, why should I let you in? We do not say, because I did this, because I did that, because I attend this church, because I read this book, because my parents are these people. We say, because you, you chose me, you bought me, you adopted me, you paid the ransom fee, you paid the adoption fee. And it's all of grace so that we cannot boast before the judge. You were predestined. Well, some might argue, well, why, why pray for people then? Why, why do we share the gospel? Why do we send people to plant churches? Why do we send people in foreign missions? Why do we translate the Bible into any language if it's predetermined, predestined? One, we're commanded to. You're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. God tells us to. Second of, all, second of all, we don't know who the predestined are. We don't know who the elect are. And so by the means that God has given us through evangelism, through prayer, we plead with people. But it is not our work. It is up to God. And He has chosen before the foundations of the world. And He showered us in kindness. That's a snippet of the doctrine of predestination. This is a hotly and widely debated doctrine. I remember debating this and... Yeah, debate's the right word. With my wife. Before she was my wife, we were dating. We were talking about this doctrine. and I didn't handle theological discussions very good. And I was kind of a jerk about it some tears shed not on my part so i had to apologize and and when we ever get into debates of doctrine 
We have, to, we have to know that we are chosen by grace and we have to be gracious in our conversations. We're not here with a hammer to be like, this is true. If you don't believe this, you're not even saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to say what Paul is saying in Ephesians. And this is what I see. That the doctrine of predestination is immensely biblical. And we don't choose doctrine based on what we like and what we don't like. That's that. Predestination, it talks about our adoption into God's family. And so William Barclay, scholar, biblical scholar, he says this about this adoption this Roman, in Roman law. So in Roman law, when the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all his rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all the debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. This is a very, very intriguing picture of what it means to be adopted into God's family. That we were orphans, hostile to God, without a family, but a debt had to be paid because of our sin against a perfect and just and holy God. In Roman law, if you're adopted, even in Roman law when you're adopted, those debts are wiped clean. How much more then, when God adopts you into the family of his kingdom, are our debts debts wiped clean, and we are new. We have all the rights of this new family, and our former family, and that connection is no longer tying us. We are born again into this new family. And it speaks, this adoption speaks of God's fatherly and tender love. God's unfolding plan in all the Bible includes things like salvation from sin and personal transformation. But there's also this warm, confident relationship that we have with God the Father that he's gone through such a great length to adopt you into his family at the cost of his own son. So that's verses 1 to 8. We'll continue in verse 9. Paul writes, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us, this is predestination again, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Not only is there the doctrine of predestination, there's this other doctrine called the doctrine of eternal security. If you are adopted into his family, if God adopts you and purchases you with the blood at the cost of his own son, you cannot lose that adoption certificate. It is eternal. It is forever binding. It is invincibly strong because it is sealed by the blood of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. 
So people ask the question on a practical level, so if someone is a Christian, are they always a Christian? A theological phrase for that is, if someone is saved, can they lose their salvation? The answer is no. You cannot lose your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, that means you're keeping it somehow. That you're waiting to not sin in this particular way and lose your salvation. I remember debating this with Caitlin years ago. And I remember saying to her, who at the time she believed in the doctrine, or that she believed you can lose your salvation. And I remember saying to her, I worry that if you believe this, you'll be a schizophrenic Christian. I worry if you, believe, if you really believe this, then now Christianity becomes works-based because you're just trying to hold on. There's no freedom. The doctrine of eternal security should give you great freedom because God says, I'm holding you. I'm the one who bought you. I'm the one who holds you in my family with my own power, not you. The doctrine of eternal security frees you to live as God has truly made you. We are not the Mormons who offer a different doctrine that you have to work and work and work, or the Jehovah's Witnesses that say you have to work and work and work to keep it. Christ says, I have accomplished it by my own merit, not you, and I hold you. You cannot lose your salvation. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, the prince of preachers, he said this, we are not sitting here and groaning and crying and fretting and worrying and questioning our own salvation. He has blessed us, and therefore we will bless him. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great notion of his great mercy to you, you will be greatly grateful to your gracious God. Do you hear that? If you think little of what God has done for you, what has he done for you? He's removed the debt of sin, the penalty of sin that damns us all to hell in a conscious torment under the full fury and wrath of God. God sent his only son to pay for that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The immensity of God's forgiveness was so costly. It was at the cost of the blood of his own son for us. That is mind-bogglingly... Did I just make that word up? That is incomprehensibly amazing. That's why Paul in these 14 verses is like, blah. Amazing! Do you see this? If you don't, you need to look closer. If not, you need to pray more. You need to get in the Word and see how awesome, fantastic, glorious this God is. If you think so lowly of that, that you do very little for Him, it's because we don't understand what we're saved from. I think that's why a lot of Christianity globally is so, at times, Ho-hum. It's just, uh, it's just cultural. It's just uh, intellectual things. Yeah, I'm a Christian. It doesn't really matter, though. I don't know. 
yeah, I read the Bible sometimes. And there's no joy. There's no, none of this like furious love that we see. This passion that we have for the gospel. The doctrine of eternal security should give us that. That we are saved forever. And that when we screw up, because we will, we do not think, oh, my dad's going to kick me out of his family. No. God would never do that. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's amazing. It's amazing to be adopted in God's family. What other worldview, what other investment, what other thing could we go after that promises eternal security? People want job security. People want health security. People want all sorts of security. God himself says, I will watch over you. I will be with you. I am there for you. Paul continues in verse 12. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Why did God do this? Why did God adopt us? Why did God predestine us? Why did God give us this eternal security in him? Why did Paul write this to the Ephesians? So that we would praise and glorify him. Everything we do as believers, everything we do, and Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about how whether you eat or sleep or drink and do the most mundane things, you do it for what? The glory of God. The chief end of all mankind, the chief end and primary purpose of each of us, globally, no matter your race, and Paul's speaking about that, whether you're Jew or non-Jew, which includes everyone. It's like when people talk about We fix imports and non-imports. That means we fix all cars. We are the people of God and we do so to the glory and praise of His name. We do not do anything out of selfish ambition. We do not do anything to exalt the name of our own churches, our own families. We do it to the praise and glory of Him. as all of us. And when the Jewish people at the time thought they were the chosen people, that they were the only ones predestined to be in God's family, to be in God's holy land, to be God's in God's covenant promise. The Jews, they thought they were the bee's knees and they were the ones that God came to save. But the New Testament, and as we see history unfolding, God is saying, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for everyone else. And we bring racial reconciliation 
because Christ has killed the wall of hostility that divides every race on this planet. There's no room for hostility. Christ broke that at the cross. He removed the wall and he brought true reconciliation. He brought true reconciliation. So, Paul, what do we do with all this? What do we do with this? These fireworks of poetry and exposition and amazing words of God. What do we do with this? In light of these great truths, this is for all of us. We are to lead lives that are a fitting tribute of gratitude to God. I'm going to say this two more times. We are to lead lives that are a fitting tribute of gratitude to our great God. We are to live our lives in such a way as a tribute, as gratitude toward this amazing God. We live out of response to what has happened to us. We live out of thankfulness and gratitude what God has done. There's no sense being a crotchety, cynical, downcast. What other words I can use? We should be the most joyful people of all Christians. Because we live out of gratitude to what has been done. Sadly, that is not the case, is it? We want to we want to wag our fingers and we want to wag our heads at all sorts of people. At the government. At other Christians. At that guy who put snow in front of my house. That's a true story. We won't talk about that. Out of gratitude. We live out of gratitude. Have you ever heard the Christian life explained like that? It is not a series of obligations, but out of gratitude for what God has done for us. Let us rest in that and let us pray to that end. Heavenly Father, thank you. A million thank yous and a million more for what you've done. Teach my heart to be grateful. For when I am wrong, for when we are wronged and slighted and ignored and dejected and forgotten, we know that you have not forgotten us, that you adopted us, and you know exactly who we are, and you still love us, and you still sent your Son. Father, I pray for those, whether listening online or in this room, who do not know you, that they would know the preciousness of what it means to be a child of God. And Father, for each of us, would we be grateful for every breath, for every heartbeat and every sunrise and every drop of snow and rain, that we can see these things and taste them and know that you are good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.